0: Racism is a stressor that causes wounds to the individuals who are exposed to this. And these wounds, it takes a while for these wounds to heal. It is a public health crisis, and it can
1: devastate a community. From UW Tacoma, this is Pod Defiance.
2: Welcome to Pod Defiance, where we don't lecture, but we do educate. I'm your host, Eric Wilson Edge. Today on the Pod, part two of our conversation about the social determinants of health with UW Tacoma Assistant Professor Sharon Lang and UW Associate Professor Wendy Barrington. In this episode, we'll talk about COVID 19 and its impact on communities of color. We'll also talk about the link between racism and stress, as well as why racism should be considered a public health crisis. In terms of the pandemic, how has that um, sort of exposed these issues that you're talking about, and what ways are we seeing those things um, pop up in the midst of this pandemic?
0: It's funny because um, history really is a teacher for us, and unfortunately, we haven't learned from history. We've had natural disasters before, and these natural disasters really demonstrate a very strong relationship between socioeconomic status and health status. Um, So we look at, say, Katrina back in 2005, right? Over 1,800 people died in that disaster. The question that we ask, well, who died during this thing? These people were mostly unemployed or underemployed. They were low-income people. There were socially isolated people. And there were people with chronic medical conditions. So we see the parallels to what's going on today. If we look 10 years, even before that, the Chicago heat wave in 1995, where you had for three full days, these sweltering temperatures that ran over 100 degrees, 104, 106 for three days. You had 739 people that died right? Who died? Mostly elderly. They lived, these individuals lived in the poorest neighborhoods in Chicago. These individuals had underlying medical conditions like asthma and cardiovascular problems. These individuals were immobile. In fact, the worst cases that we see for individuals here were individuals who were asthmatic, or, who, or older individuals with cardiac problems who suffered these heat strokes. Some of these individuals in terms of poverty, they had no working air condition. Some of these inter- individuals in terms of where they lived, they lived in communities where perhaps there was some violence and so the, the windows were boarded up and they couldn't get out of their homes because of that. So again, the question is, well, when, when, when disaster occur, who dies? The poor? the sick, and the elderly. This is exactly what we're seeing here with COVID-19. Except now, we have the worst disaster that we could possibly have perhaps in our lifetimes. And which means that these individuals that have been identified as the ones who are victimized by natural disasters, the numbers are thousandfold or over 150,000 deaths in the United States. that's very sad. So let's start with COVID-19. In December of 2019, when this came out, we felt that, well, no one is immune to this virus. It's an equal um, opportunity virus, right? I mean, when we looked to Europe, when we looked to East Asia, when we looked to Southeast Asia, um, we saw that everybody pretty much were likely to um, acquire this awful virus. Yet, as the bodies started to pile up here in the United States, where we have that diversity—it's not a homogeneous communities—you see the identification of these bodies: they're black bodies, they're brown bodies, and there are indigenous bodies. These are the bodies that are piling up here. Who's most likely to die from COVID-19? A recent report on this indicated that the infection rate for COVID-19 is three times higher in predominantly black counties than predominantly white counties in the United States. The same report indicated that mortality rate for COVID-19 might be as high as six times higher in black counties in the US than white counties. So these are the things that we must consider. As far as looking at the specific social determinants of health factors and how they really link back to COVID-19. Let's look at three factors here. Socioeconomic status, health access, and bias in our healthcare system. Okay, let's look at those three factors. We know that socioeconomic status is impacted by, obviously, if you're a higher status, you have a higher paying job, better job, so to speak. And let's look at where the individuals who perished most, where are they working? These individuals are frontline workers. Their jobs are deemed essential, yet their pay does not make their job essential because it's low pay. We're talking about individuals who are bus drivers, who are custodians, who are food preparation workers, supermarket clerks, medical assistants, restaurant industry workers. These type of jobs, you will see that these jobs are segregated by race and socioeconomic status. Who occupy those jobs? Mostly people of color, African-American, Latinx communities. These type of jobs increases the exposure to this awful virus, hence likely to take the lives of individuals who are employed in these types of jobs. Let's think about where people live and how that also allows us to see the impact of COVID-19 on SDOH factor. Well, in terms of where people live, people of communities of colors, particularly low-income communities, are more likely to live in um, more disadvantaged communities. You have multiple people who are dwelling within that community, large number of individuals within a small, confined space that perpetuate um, encourages the movement of the virus because there's more people who are likely to contract it. When we talk about physical distancing in order to help mitigate the impact of COVID-19, when you look at it, physical distancing is really an issue of privilege, isn't it? Because if you live in a community where you don't have overcrowding, if you live in a community or you live in it, if you have a job that allows you to telecommute, you can feel this physically distance. What about the communities who do not have the luxury of physically distancing? Because they are in a community whereby there's so many of them in the household because they can't afford to live on their own. And so this is where we see that these SDOH factors really expose, um, or, or the COVID-19, um, um, pardon me. Really expose the impact of SDOH factors. People cannot physically distance. People cannot stay away from their low income jobs that expose them to the disease at a very very high level. We look at healthcare um, access and healthcare status, and again, we see how COVID-19 exposes the impact of SDOH factor and who are, who is affected. Let's ask ourselves: Where are these testing centers? that people can go test for the virus. For the most part, these testing centers are found in affluent communities. You don't see these testing centers in low-resource communities. In many situations, in order to get tested, people require a doctor's note. Low-income communities who do not have a primary care provider do not have the doctor's note even if they can go to that testing center, and so they can't get tested. And so there you have again, a situation based on healthcare access and income that limits the, the, the possibility to remediate the impact of this disease in this community. The final factor that we need to think about is underlying health conditions. As we said, and I, we talked about earlier, for many communities of color, because of insufficient income, if they have a particular condition early, they may not be able to take care of it because they just don't have the health access to do that, right? Then that means that if you don't, then you may have a severe expression of this particular condition. The recent research shows us that most of the patients who are coming in with COVID-19 have asthma at the highest level. Asthma is a big thing in the African-American community. And so these underlying conditions that were never remediated, that involves even multiple conditions, comorbid conditions, then puts certain communities at risk. And so in this way, you can see how, again, access to healthcare, ability to address your healthcare needs, really is a social determinant of health factor that COVID has exposed to show that certain communities are more likely to die from this particular disease. Because of these factors. And the final thing that I want to talk about is bias in our healthcare system. There's bias in who is referred for life saving interventions. There's bias in who is subjected to unnecessary treatments that can be life threatening. We know this from the Unequal Treatment Report commissioned by the Institute of Medicine documenting bias, racism, prejudice, and stereotypes by healthcare professionals. These biases are confirmed in a number of studies since the original report back in 2002. Bias contributes to differences in healthcare treatment, and bias has disproportionately negatively impacted African American communities. So, as far as COVID 19, it was noted early during the course of this pandemic that due to insufficient resources like personal protective equipment, or ICU beds, physicians can make a decision about who gets treated and who does not. So you may have a poor African-American person who comes in to be treated. You may have a homeless African-American person who comes in to be treated. You may have an overweight African-American person who comes in to be treated. Medical doctors can make a decision about who gets treated and who does not, and they're forced to do so based on the early lack of availability of medical resources. You will invariably have bias in who will be sent home because they are perceived to be far gone, too far gone to save. They may be sent home to die because resources are being saved for those who the doctors perceive as the ones who can be saved and who are most likely to survive or who deserve to be saved. Who makes that decision? Bias in our healthcare system disproportionately affects communities of color leading to disparities in health outcomes. So I guess in wrapping up this particular section and thinking about this, historically pandemics have exposed the impact of social determinants of health and has linked as shown that certain communities will perish in these situations. The problem is that we haven't learned from history, and yet history continues to repeat itself. Katrina, the heat wave was 1995, COVID 2020, and what else is forthcoming for us to learn our lessons?
2: It's interesting um, hearing the two of you uh, talk about this. It- it all seems to fit together into some sort of kind of cleanly and just into kind of like a horrible puzzle. Like once you take the separate pieces and you can kind of see how it all works uh, once it's combined. Um, Yeah. So that's really interesting. um, Also a little depressing, but um, I think we have to get that information and be a little depressed um, if we hope to do anything about it. Um, In my mind, uh, not talking about it is kind of what we got, how we got here. So talking about it, it seems like the first step to doing actually something to change
1: all of this. If I may, I want to kind of step back to something that you just said, because I think it's really important to kind of emphasize. You were mentioning about how, you know, this, this discussion that we've been having has been almost, well, it is depressing. It's It can be overwhelming and that that can, you know, instill a sense of inaction. And, you know, I'm kind of gonna move us more into talking about next steps and really discussing, you know, anti-racism and efforts that are anti-racist. And what do I mean by that? So, you know, the way that this country has operated for, you know, since, as you mentioned earlier about, you know, teaching that, you know, racism no longer exists You know, I don't see color, everything's fine, you know, by not being racist, that that has contributed to the perpetuation of our systemic racist processes that we are continuing to experience to this day. So the need to really, you know, I think we're really at this amazing moment where everyone's eyes, specifically white people's eyes, are opening up to the fact that no, no, it's not that I am not racist, Is that I need to be anti racist. And what do I mean by that? Um, Anti racism is making intentional change, so action, to actually undo the processes of racism. So not just kind of letting things go as they are, but actually dialing in, you know, pushing up your sleeves working shoulder to shoulder, and really quite frankly, having black indigenous and people of color kind of lead that process of interrogating how racism is working in systems and identifying and designing solutions to be able to put into practice, to be able to undo the effects and the the perpetrating kind of nature of those racist mechanisms. So, um, you know, how can we do this? Earlier, you know, I spoke of racism really as a social determinant of equity. So given that inequity is a threat to our very notion of a democratic and just society, I'm just going to go ahead and say, why don't we see systemic inequity as a symptom of disease, disease of systems? And how can we come together to start to rectify, to treat and cure the disease in our systems. So essentially our systems need a wellness checkup, quite frankly. We need to diagnose systemic racism by evaluating policies, practices, and norms to see if communities are disproportionately experiencing harm or disadvantage. And if they are, we have to make changes to not only stop that from happening, but to actually make uh, reparations or to actually repair the, the, the actual harm that's already been inflicted. So that's, that's one thing. So, you know, these treatments can include revising existing policies, developing new policies, um, and as well as this needing to be done across levels of society. So, you know, at the, at the national level, you know, at the state level, at the community level, you know, at the school level, at the organizational level, within our own places of work and worship and play, however we want to kind of define these different spaces that we move in. Um, now, this talk, especially talking in terms of reparations, makes people really nervous, um, because, quite frankly adopting and perpetuating whiteness, this, this, this concept I described earlier as a state of being, which allows uh, systemic racism to continue. Um, It is inherently exclusionary. I kind of talked before about this idea that, you know, which I really kind of characterize whiteness in thinking that, well, if you have something, then that means that I don't have something, you know, needing to just cut that out, excise it, you know, remove it, amputate that from our consciousness and think more collectively. Um, so where does nurses come into this? So 2020 has been declared by the World Health Organization as the year of the nurse. And I've been really quite blessed to be able to kind of work with nurses and learn about the profession, especially within my, um, position in the School of Nursing at the UW. And, you know, I see the profession as having very specific expertise to contribute to actually diagnosing systems and working with stakeholders in those systems to come up with a holistic treatment plan, because that's what nurses do. I'm learning so much from my nursing students, um, how nurses are known for thinking through with patients about how to prioritize action to address and facilitate health. Respect during, respecting and fostering patient autonomy, even when counter to Western expectations of health and wellness. Now, if we can translate that to diagnosing racism and, and fostering you know, communities of color and empowerment, even when counter to Western status quo notions of how, how operations have been, we are at a really kind of exciting point to be able to have activated actors be able to start to dismantle and disrupt and transform health care, but also this could serve as models for other systems as well, because quite frankly, this needs to be done, whether it's in education, whether it's in healthcare, whether it's in law enforcement and criminal justice, whether it's within mortgage lending, whatever. It has to be done across the board because racism has seeped into so many of our systems and to all of our systems, because it really, again, has been the bedrock that has served to create and perpetuate um, our nation, which has been founded on white supremacy. So I think, you know, part of this is assessing and addressing social determinants of health and equity. You know, nurses do this at the bedside. They do this in communities. But really, quite frankly, population health nurses need to do this for systems. We need more population health nurses.
2: So Sharon, I'm wondering if you could talk to us about what it means um, when we say that racism is a public health crisis.
0: Yes. Thank you, Eric. Now, racism is indeed a public health crisis, and we need to address it in this way as a nation. I'd like to present this part of the discussion by first conceptualizing what public health is and what racism is. Public health is designed to protect the health of individuals within their communities. Public health promotes and protects individuals where they live, work, play, and worship. Racism, on the other hand, is a system of power that assigns some type of value to individuals based on a social interpretation of what race is supposed to be. Now, when we think about the impact of racism, it is that it unfairly disadvantages some individuals and communities while advantages other individuals and communities. Therefore, racism leads to inequities. So, racism is indeed a public health concern because it creates inequities, and social and economic inequities cause disease and death to those who are the victims of its virulent effects. What this means is that race matters. So I'll just look at this from a purely biological perspective, Eric, in terms of looking at the impact of racism on the health of communities. Okay? If you look at this from, say, the activation of our system, right, the activation of our sympathetic nervous system, right, you experience a a stressful event. You're walking down the street. It's dark. You hear something. You're the only one walking down. There's an excitation of your system. Your heart um, races. Your galvanic skin response or your sweat gland activity is is activated. Your, Your pupils dilate. It gets wider to deal with things. So your body is designed to deal with a stressor, right? And so it's designed to either fight that stressor and remove it from you or to flee from that stressor. But there are changes in your body body that's designed to do that. Well, think about what those changes are. You have cardiovascular reactivity, increase in heart rate, increase in blood pressure. So you have this area of the sympathetic system that is kind of tapped to address this issue. Well, here's the thing. If you experience chronic stress, you are always activating that system, which is a protective device to protect you from the effects of something pernicious. And you have situations whereby, and the research has borne this out, whereby African-American men seem to have a higher baseline level of heart rate variability. Why? The explanation for that is that the exposure to chronic stress, in this case, chronic racism, raises or elevates the action of that system and puts this community at risk. And hence, you will see higher levels of cardiovascular reactivity or cardiovascular diseases in communities of color, particularly black communities, than you will see in white communities. That's one way in thinking about how the exposure to stress, racism being a stressor, can cause poor health outcome in a community that's exposed to this for sustained periods. The other thing, the other way I'd like to look at this is research that address um, wound healing, okay? And so it's looking at the time it takes to heal from a wound when you are distressed. And there's research that looked at undergraduate students that show that um, wound healing for students who study for an exam is shown to be 40% longer than those not studying for an exam. Stress, therefore, lowers our immune system, lowers the T cell activity, reduces inflammation. And so the time it takes to recover from an insult to the system. Is much longer when you are experiencing stress and distress than if you're not experiencing stress. So here's the problem that we have here. Not only do you have the galvanization, um, this various systems that are being galvanized, like heart rate activity, that puts you at risk because it compromises the system, but you have a situation where you're laid bare because anti-inflammation is happening and you're unable to respond to an insult that is trying to penetrate your system. A cold, a flu, a virus, COVID-19. Okay, And so this is how, when we speak about racism being a public health um, crisis, racism is a stressor that causes wounds to the individuals who are exposed to this and these wounds, it takes a while for these wounds to heal. It is a public health crisis, and it can devastate a community.
1: Sharon, I think that's a really great and how you have centered the conversation not on racial differences in health outcomes, but the actual impact of racism on physiologic processes that put people at risk for disease, you know the The evidence is growing about the impact of of racism and and you know Sharon has has shared with us about that, but you know up until this point, you know the academy really and researchers have really wanted to focus on trying to explain differences in health outcomes because of like these racial categorizations instead of recognizing that it's the experiences of racism that are contributing to these differences in health outcomes yeah so um you know so how how is um anti-racism playing out now you know and quite frankly this is this is a fairly new i mean it calls for anti-racist approaches is, are not new um but actual political will and when i say political i mean um I mean that's going to vary. We don't. We're not seeing that at the federal level, but you know, within um, more local levels, whether it be state or county or organizational, we are seeing changes such that people and organizations are willing to implement these approaches. Um, currently, I'm working with the Washington Department of Health and federally qualified health centers to increase preventive cancer screening rates. Screening for breast, cervical, and colorectal cancer can save lives by finding cancer earlier when it's easier to treat. Um, there are two federally funded screening programs that provide um, screening opportunities for low income and un- or underinsured populations seen at federally qualified health centers or FQHCs. And we are now discussing how to make the work that we're doing this partnership, how we can actually implement anti-racist strategies.
0: As we think about the applications of this work, my research appears relevant to this discussion. I conduct research on the applicability of mobile health technology, smartphones, mobile health apps, and sensors to support health outcomes for communities disproportionately affected by chronic diseases, including diabetes, cardiovascular diseases, and uh, and some cancers. What we have learned is that many low-income communities Particularly, low income African Americans have access to smartphones and use them regularly to address a number of social and economic needs. These communities also may not have regular access to healthcare support. Now, mobile health technology leverages smartphones and health apps such as glucose monitoring and mental health tracking apps to support health and wellness for communities that may not have access to immediate health care. However, what we have noted recently is that many of these tools are not usable for all intended users. To illustrate, a recent study reported on the usability of very common health apps addressing diabetes, depression, and caregiving. In this study, respondents were asked to, one, enter the names of medications that they were taking for specific health concerns, enter their blood sugar level to monitor diabetic status, and enter mood status to track mental health and well-being. Respondents included a variety of Individuals such as whites, African Americans, and Latinos. And the respondents presented with multiple chronic health conditions, including diabetes and depression. Now, surprisingly, when we look at the results of the study, surprisingly, the participants in the studies were only able to complete 43% of the tasks involved in monitoring their health concerns without assistance. And this was across 11 popular health apps. These tasks involve manual entry of their health data, moving through multiple screens and steps, and retrieving their data from the applications. So, we see usability barriers for patients with chronic health conditions. We can surmise that for communities encompassing different social, economic, and cultural needs, the challenges might be stronger. As we move to incorporate technology, into healthcare delivery. Designers of the technology must consider whether the different tools, such as mobile health apps, are easy to understand, easy to access, and easy to be used by the different end users who will engage with this technology. Considerations might include cultural differences in interpreting presented information, language differences of the end users, and Differences in educational level of respondents. Therefore, a one size does not fit all. To surmise, therefore, existing systems might disadvantage one group over the other by not considering and incorporating the unique and specific needs of all groups, especially groups that might be historically disenfranchised.
1: So, just to kind of piggyback, on what uh, Sharon was was talking about, um, I mentioned earlier, you know, about the need to examine and value kind of alternative ways of knowing. So, this speaks directly to what Sharon was just sharing: how you know we must be able to consider other ways of of doing and being, essentially, when we are when we are generating knowledge and creating innovations, and you know there's a rich and robust line of scholarship that explores, you know, quite frankly, how white supremacy has lifted the ideologies of white Europeans while invalidating and stamping out alternative ways of knowing of other peoples. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm an epidemiologist and, you know, my training has prepared me to study the distribution and determinants of diseases in human populations, and even that very definition should clue you into the fact that my discipline is very steeped in Western conceptions of health. So only by, and by using this very limited perspective, we may be missing key health innovations. So I think that's that's a really great point. Most of, of what we know about human health is from studying white populations. Mm-hmm. Um, this omits the experiences of people of color, specifically with respect to how those experiences shape health and wellbeing both beneficial and harmful elements of experience, including racism. So in my, in my research, I've begun to ask myself how scientific questions, how my scientific questions, potentially align or contribute to racist or hegemonic ideas, methods, or approaches. So traditionally we've been taught that those ideas, methods, and approaches are valid or the gold standard through our conversation, I think we can arrive that these ways of knowing are not valid or beneficial even for everyone. And because of this, I've also started to ask myself how I incorporate ways of thinking and doing that is grounded in the experiences or priorities of peoples who have been oppressed, marginalized, or excluded by hegemonic and racist ways of knowing. So I think, you know, this kind of, it's essentially a reflection. It's, It's almost like Having, you know, running an internal conflict of interest statement and thinking about how, how am I thinking about this and how is this perpetuating, you know, systemic racism and what am I doing to disrupt that? I think that's really the key to what we all need to do and quite frankly, in all, in all, you know, domains of our life. Thank you to our guests, and thank you for listening. Be sure to like and subscribe. You can find us on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Pocket Cast, Stitcher, and Apple Podcasts.